Welcome back to Let's Be Real. My name is Erica and we are jumping into Ruth chapter three. We have laid a lot of the groundwork in the introduction, chapters one and two, that that chapter three and four are going to be a bit quicker than the others. So we are going to read through and talk through Ruth chapter three. We're continuing on with this theme of a play, of a drama. We're in act three. We're seeing two people putting the good of someone else above their own. That is a theme going through this whole book, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but let that sink in. Just people putting the good of others above their own, like wouldn't we love to see a bit more of that in this world? And it's very easy to say that we would love to see that, that other people should do that, others should do that. But when it comes to our own lives, our own futures, sometimes, a lot of times, it can be challenging to make that same decision. So we jump into chapter three. We see Naomi taking the initiative at this point. We've seen Ruth taking the initiative. Now we are at Naomi. To catch you up to where we were, end of chapter two, Ruth has gone to the fields. She just chanced upon chance to end up in the field of a righteous, gracious man who allowed her, Boaz, to glean through all of the harvesting of both the barley and the wheat season in his fields to stay safe. And now Naomi has a plan in chapter 3. Let's start reading verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, being Ruth, all that you say, I will do. So we see Naomi kind of reflecting on the situation in this in verses 1 through 3. She's really seeing an opportunity for her to potentially step into the blessing that she made on both Ruth and Orpah in chapter 1, when she said, go home and find rest in the home of your new husband. She's like, oh, wait a second. There might be an opportunity here. We might need to make a second opportunity, a second encounter with Boaz happen. I have this idea where we can keep you under God's wings, maybe, where we can seek security and get your needs met and possibly get married and have a home. All of these things that she wants for Ruth. So she makes a plan. She says, hey, Ruth, it's time for winnowing, which happens outside of town, out in a separate area of the field. So winnowing would actually take place uh, some distance, probably outside from Bethlehem on a hard, flat place. A lot of times it could be a rock outcropping where all of the men, all of the farmers would take their grain because they need to get up a little bit higher to take advantage of the wind so that they could do the winnowing. So it would be a public place. It would be a very social function. There would be a lot of business transactions happening, a lot of political actions, sometimes worship. But all of the men are publicly out in the open. This is a publicly owned threshing floor. It's not exactly your own private threshing barn. You're outside and there's a bunch of people. So they spend days out there. They sleep at the feet of their grain. They pile it up. They sleep it to keep it safe, to make sure nobody sneaks in to get it. 
they eat, they drink. Again, in the time of judges, probably not the safest place to go. Naomi's like, keep yourself out of sight of everybody. Wait till they all fall asleep. Pay attention to where he falls asleep because he's not going to be alone. There's going to be a lot of people, and then it's going to be dark. And then you're going to go sneak up and lay down by his feet. In the meantime, you need to prepare Ruth for the encounter. You're going to wash and you're going to dress. The word here for dress, put on clothes, it's the simla. Some translations say it's like your best clothes. Others will talk about how it's this outer garment that covers your whole body. It's also one that was very common where you would maybe wrap it around your waist and it ties and then the remainder of it kind of flings up over your shoulder. It could also be used as a blanket. There's a couple different views on what it is that Naomi is telling Ruth to put on. But what the consensus is is that she's telling Ruth, it's time to come out of your mourning clothes. Women would mourn for a long time. Widows might mourn in terms of dress the rest of their lives. So she's saying, hey, it's time that you put on real clothes. It shows you have come out of mourning and you are available for marriage. We don't see it happen, but we assume Ruth does it, seeing that she doesn't complain. She doesn't say anything other than she says, okay, I'll do everything that you said, that she bathes to get clean. She perfumes, which is probably just a lightly scented olive oil. She gets on her non-morning clothes, and she heads out of town toward the threshing floors. So Ruth is going to approach Boaz at the floor, and she's going to be careful. She's going to wait until he's asleep. And you know what? With Ruth being a Moabite, She is changing the stereotype. She is being a very different Moabite. She is being the opposite. If you can think back to how the nation of Moab started, it was Lot and his two daughters that birthed Moab. After they flee from their home that was destroyed, Lot and his two daughters are living out in a cave, and they're like, hey, what are we going to do? We have no children. This line is going to die out. They get their father drunk for a couple nights, and they each take turns with him and they both become pregnant they both begin two different nations not really looked at with real high favor one being Moab so we see this approach being very different we see the stereotype being changed and challenged that she is going to be a respectful do this the right way type of woman not like the daughters of Lot so we see Ruth being told to go uncover his feet and lay there and wait There have been some that really view this and look at this to be a very risque action here. Part of the problem is it was not uncommon for prostitutes to come offer their services at the threshing floor. Hosea 9.1 even kind of alludes to it when it says, Do not exult as other nations do, for you have played the whore, departing from your God. You have loved a prostitute's pay on all threshing floors. So that was a common thing that went down on the threshing floor. But there are three words here. Uncover, lie down. That's all that's being said. It can be interpreted very, very innocently. There are a couple different meanings to the word feet in Hebrew. One means the male genital area. Based on Boaz's reaction, as well as the fact that there are other meanings for the word foot, I do not see that as the word being used here. Many, many scholars also point to the fact that The word feet can also be used, and it is in a couple different places, for the meanings of leg and feet, as in Daniel 10. We're just talking about maybe the full part of the leg, thigh down. In Boaz's reaction, he shows us that he sees this as an innocent act. Boaz probably wouldn't call her a noble woman if she was indeed acting like 
a prostitute. And then Naomi just tells her, and you know what, and then just sit and wait. We're going to, and just wait to see what he says. Naomi has hope for his response. She is either very confident in Boaz's response, or she is really having a solid, deep faith in God at this point. So let's look at the second encounter with Boaz. Verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and covered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in the way you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So there is hope in this response before she goes, before she obeys Naomi and follows her plan. There's this hope that Boaz responds positively, that he sees their idea, this plan for what it really is. He could see her as a prostitute and accept her services. He could shoo her off, completely reject her actions, think they're ridiculous. Or he could also see the situation for what is happening and respond in her favor and ask for an explanation, possibly. This is the desired, and it's actually the least likely response of the three. So what are the chances that that would be the response, that third option, that he would see the situation for what it is. I mean, we have learned already in this book that we don't look at things with chance. We look at them with the hand of God and providence. And we know that earlier on when the author uses this very rare phrase, when Ruth chanced upon chances, the field of Boaz, it's a flag to be paying attention like, hey, none of this is about chance. This is about the providence of God. What's crazy about this when you think about the chance or the odds that Boaz would respond favorably is a woman doesn't propose to a man, but here this is what's happening. Certainly not a younger woman to an older man or a foreigner to a native. And what are the odds he's going to give a rational response after being awoken from a sleepy state, kind of out of his home when you can be disoriented and having been drinking before, like, All of the odds are against this, but Ruth is like, all right, I'm going to give it a go, and we see her go, and we see her do it. We see her in evening head out to the field and watch from afar. She probably doesn't sleep at all. It's probably very tense. I can only imagine as I try to picture this, her creeping up from afar and watching, not wanting to be noticed by everybody else, and it's getting dark, and then oh my gosh, it's called like the watch pot never boils. Now you're watching people eat, drink, and waiting for them all to lay down and fall asleep all while you have to stay awake. I would not be good at this mission. I cannot stay up very late. But she stands, she waits, she watches. And as midnight comes, we see him wake up at midnight. So sometime roughly before that, she comes and she uncovers his feet and his legs and she lays down at his feet. And we see in scripture that it says he shivered and woke up and there was a woman at his feet. 
he was cold. Maybe <laughs> his legs got exposed. It's a very normal reason to wake up. But instead of assuming that there's a prostitute at his feet, and maybe he was, he asks the question, who are you? Because he's a righteous man. He is not taking these advances or non-advances in that way. Ruth answers in verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. And here she's using a different word. She is using the word for maidservant. So when she was gleaning in his field, she had used the term in chapter 2, handmaid, alongside his other women. Those were his handmaids. Now, a handmaid is not eligible for marriage, not in her social status. So here we see Ruth elevate herself in her clothes. She took herself out of her morning dress. And now she's calling herself a maidservant, which is a couple places higher than the handmaid that she was in chapter 2, that puts her into a social status that is eligible for marriage. But she's like, but it's not about who I am. I'm here for you. She shares why she's there. She's pretty much commanding him, like, marry me. But she couldn't do it directly, so she had to do it metaphorically, and she uses this very common idiom of marriage, and you must spread your wings over me. She's asking for this nonverbal declaration of providing security for his future wife. And she says it's because you are a goel. You are a redeemer. You're a relative. You're one of our kinsmen redeemers. Ruth is almost lecturing Boaz here about his responsibility. And she's linking kinsman redeemer and leveret marriage together. So we've talked about leveret marriage. We've talked about being a kinsman redeemer. He is a goel. He is a kinsman redeemer. A family can have multiple, and we see that play out here. There is one closer in line that is the responsible party, which is the one that Boaz points out in just a minute. And Ruth and Naomi know that he is a, he's not the, at least not yet, he is a redeemer for their line. There, she's actually also asking him, to marry her. So she's kind of putting this idea of leveret marriage, which is essentially for a brother-in-law to marry his sister-in-law after the passing of his brother. This is very far removed. This is not Boaz's responsibility. It's actually not even the responsibility of a kinsman redeemer. We went through the list last week of what the responsibilities of a redeemer are, and they are about a family name, money, welfare. It's not including marriage. So Ruth is kind of doing a strange thing here. She's showing some chutzpah, and she is kind of putting those together. Now, it's sort of a man-made maybe custom where we start to see the redeemer leveret marriage line blend and blur a little bit. But scripture, the Torah does not have in the law any overlap between these two roles. So here we have Ruth in full chutzpah and bold behavior, a poor Moabite female widowed servant demanding that her rich male boss marry her. And this is actually a very extremely precarious position. Uh, He could have asked her, like, who do you think you are? Like, this is absurd. This is ridiculous. Get out of here. You have no right to ask these things. But it worked. And Boaz's reaction is unbelievable. He blesses her. He doesn't condemn her, but he actually then praises her. He doesn't put her down. He reassures her. Instead of telling her all the nasty things people may have thought about her and in that moment, he shares what the people of town actually thought of her and see her as a noble woman. He is complimentary. He says he will do this if the other redeemer doesn't want to. But he tells her to lie down and stay the rest of the night. This is possibly 
to protect her from the rest of the men there. But we see no sinister thoughts or action in his behavior by saying that. So this is really crazy because in this time, in this culture, women aren't exactly free agents to go pick who you're going to marry. That's not how it works. And it's not common for a redeemer to step on the toes of another redeemer. So there's a lot of little parts in play here, cultural and custom that need to be dealt with very carefully and will be because they're being done through the behavior and the heart and the actions of a righteous man. And it's cool to see Boaz play this out in a way that has integrity. He wants to keep integrity for himself and for his family. He's not going to risk any dishonor with how this comes because Boaz fully recognizes the problems that are ahead of him and that there's another redeemer. And he can do all this in the middle of the night. That's really impressive to just think through all of this. But we also know that Boaz has interpreted Ruth's actions here in coming to him as an extension of Yahweh's hesed. He accepts her proposal, and not naively or impulsively at all, but with knowledge that she is a noble woman. The town has said as much, and he's agreeing. So with their corresponding said, Boaz saw Ruth as a woman equal in character and status. It's not about her being a foreigner. It's not about her coming in an inappropriate, possibly, way to him, but he sees her equal to him. Now, there is a hitch in this plan. In full disclosure, there's someone else in the line, and we've seen that. He isn't the kinsman redeemer, and Boaz is going to maintain his integrity. He does not take advantage of Ruth or his relative, the other redeemer. He is going to abide by the nations and the people's customs, when it probably wasn't all that common for that to take place in the time. Now, a big theme of this book, which you've talked about, not only hesed is probably the biggest one, but the next big one is redeem, to redeem. There's a verb. And the usage of the word redeem is actually pretty striking. It's kind of shocking. It's not normally seen in quite as much frequency as we see it in verse 12. It's there three times. Boaz says, if he redeems you, fine. If he doesn't want to redeem you, then that is what it is, then I will redeem you. Now, redemption typically involved land, right? This was the job of the goel, the redeemer, not necessarily the widow. So there's no leverant marriage here. There's no discussion on family line or progeny. This plan has no discussion on children. It's just for the security from widowhood. The Torah doesn't give any specific guidance on a situation like this. So Naomi is really appealing to his moral character and an obligation to his family rather than any legal obligation because they don't really have a foot to stand on. So he knows all of this. We've talked about redemption. They lay back down again. (laughs) Whether or not they actually get any sleep, who knows? They're probably just planning and scheming and laying wide awake. Like, what do we do here? But to preserve her testimony, Ruth needs to leave, and Boaz is figuring out what to do. Don't let anyone know that a woman came to the threshing floor, is what Boaz is saying. So at verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize one another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So he held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, 
wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So it's time to get up and get out of there before anybody sees what's going on. And she gets sent home with barley. Boaz sends her home with grain, either to provide for her or to make it look like she had come out there for grain. We don't know. Both, maybe. Either way, it shows his goodwill toward her and toward Naomi. This section ends with Boaz going out of town because we know that he's going to end up at the city gate in the morning, and we know Ruth had left. So we part from the threshing floor. They both go their own ways. Boaz is scheming and planning. Ruth goes home. She comes in while it's probably dark. We come into a home of an aging Naomi, and she says, my ESV version says, how did you fare, my daughter? In the Hebrew, what we're seeing is, who are you, my daughter? It's an unexpected question from Naomi. We're not like, what do you mean, who are you? She's not saying who's there. She's saying, we don't know if Naomi knows who just came into her house. Ruth interprets the question as, how did it go? So she begins to tell about everything that happened, about Boaz's kindness. But the question in Hebrew that Naomi is asking, she's asking about identity. She's not asking about the experience. So it makes us think that maybe Naomi didn't recognize Ruth. It's just getting light. Maybe she's afraid. We don't know. But we know at this point her vision is most likely a bit obscured in the morning light. And what's really interesting is the question that's being asked here, this question of identity more than status, is the identical question that is asked in Genesis 27:18 when Isaac asks Jacob who he is. He had expected Esau. He was going to give Esau his blessing. And there was a plan put in place, mother of Jacob. And they both start, there's a lot of similarities in these stories. They both start with a mother or a mother-in-law scheming and plan to dupe a senior man. We've got duping of both Isaac and Boaz here. We also see the unidentified person is arriving with food for the head of the household. We have a person whose vision is limited, asking the questions, and both of the characters, Isaac and Ruth, put themselves, both of the characters, Jacob and Ruth, put themselves at great risk at the instruction of their mother. Naomi was maybe not even necessarily expecting Ruth back, so she's like, who are you? Ruth responds, hey, this is what happened. And what's interesting is when Ruth responds with, hey, what hap- what's happened, she doesn't name Boaz. She uses the phrase, the man. Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So now we know that he wants to send a good gift to Naomi. And we see that in action of him being concerned and worried for her. This is showing his said again that Boaz didn't think it was right for Ruth to return to her mother-in-law without a gift. We see that Boaz isn't angry with Naomi, who is the planner of the scheme. He had a gift for her. He had his accepted his role as the refuge for Ruth. But it's also that he is now also playing an agent of how Naomi's life could be refilled. He has concern for her as well, and as well as showing his understanding of a goel, of a redeemer. He may have been showing his appreciation for Naomi's scheme, like, hey, thanks, Naomi, some grain, I appreciate it. It might have been a token of good faith, showing that he's going to try to make all of this happen, possibly even the down payment for the bride price, the mohair. We don't know entirely his motivation behind it, other than he doesn't want Ruth to go home empty-handed to Naomi. We are starting to see Naomi filling up once again. We saw her being emptied in the beginning of this book, and she's beginning 
to be filled, and now they wait to see how it all fall out or turn out. This is a plea for confidence in the hidden hand of God. We see them like, we are just going to sit and we are going to trust God is going to work, but they also have confidence in Boaz and who he is. All of the characters in this book so far, in this chapter, chapter 3, act 3, they have played their roles perfectly, and we just sit and we wait. And we don't even get to see how it plays out in chapter 3. So we're going to leave ourselves in suspense until we go through chapter 4 next time, even though you might know how it plays out. But let's touch on the theological and practical significance of Ruth chapter 3. We see more lessons in chapter 3 on the nature of divine providence. In Act 1, we saw God's providence in circumstance and in personal choices. We see the drought. We see Elimelech and his family leaving and God working in the midst of all of those. In Act 2, we see the providence of God in what looks like it would just be chance. And in Act 3, we see the providence of God work in the scheming of human beings, which is crazy. Naomi had a plan. The scheme, this plan, it was a problem. It was actually almost doomed to fail at very many different levels. It was something that was very dangerous at the threshing floor, and it could have even been interpreted incorrectly. Her demand could have been rebuffed. It could have been rejected. There were things that seemed like they should not have worked out in this plan at all. But Yahweh, the providence of God, was governing and guiding Boaz's response to set the stage for future events. And that being the number one big reason this book has written the fulfillment of the messianic line. Second, we get to see the nature of covenant righteousness. We get to see what that looks like. We see it in Boaz's spiritual commitments. We see this everywhere with how he acts and what he's doing. Who doesn't like a good, clear picture of what it looks like to live righteous? Sometimes it's kind of like, well, okay, so what does that mean? What about in this situation? Like, this is a great area. Boaz is a really great picture. He recognizes his commitment to the family line, to Leverett marriage. He said he would like to fulfill the role, but would, but he would not bend the rules of redemption. Boaz isn't the primary redeemer. Ruth isn't a primary widow, but she is the subject of who is to be redeemed. She lacked all claims to the property in Israel. Naomi had the claim to the property. not But by being willing to redeem her, even with those issues, he demonstrates the essence of Hesed. He's a righteous man, and he responds to the need of extended family. He took it upon himself to step in, to care for, secure, and provide for two marginalized women. And this is without scripture finding it for him because it wasn't clear. But he knew that laws don't have to tell you the right thing to do. Boaz had a love for God. He had a love for others. And he is in action in his life and making decisions in the interest of others. I've said it before. There's a common phrase about Boaz that he was guided by Torah but driven by the Spirit. We get to see a really great picture of a righteous man in the book of Ruth. We are going to stop here, come back next time for chapter four, and we will finish up the book of Ruth then. Thanks for joining me.